Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic overseeing our toxic phase one and sarcoma programs. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Pete Anderson. Dr. Anderson is a pediatric hematologist and oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic. He's here today to talk to us about the challenges and opportunities in sarcoma care. So welcome, Pete. Oh, thanks, Dale. So happy to have you here. Can you maybe start off, tell us a little bit about your role here at Cleveland Clinic. Um, Like many pediatric oncologists, I'm a uh, utility infielder. So we see a wide variety of rare cancers. And uh, my sub-sub-subspecialty is uh, sarcomas. The way I see it is our role is to provide multidisciplinary care. So kind of the conductor of the orchestra, if you will, for children and adolescents, young adults with cancer. Well, that's, uh, let's start off with that in terms of multidisciplinary care. So specifically with sarcoma, how, how do we make that happen here at Cleveland Clinic? It's kind of funny. Um, that's one of the reasons I'm here is they do it so well. As you know, Dale, we have a a 7 a.m. Monday morning conference. But at that conference, uh, there's orthopedic surgeons, interventional radiologists, radiation oncologists, medical oncologists, pediatric oncologists, quite a few pathologists. Um, They see actually more cases than the clinicians. So it allows us to not only look at scans and try to decide the best approach to that particular solid tumor or sarcoma, but also what would be the best way to know the patient's getting better or worse, when to intervene, when not to. I've been at Mayo Clinic, I've been at uh, MD Anderson, but this one is uh, probably the best conference in my career. And I like to tell our fellows, uh, you don't get smart talking to yourself. And and that conference is a perfect example of it because if you're gonna do something stupid, they'll tell you. And if you need a new idea, there's there's enough people in the room to provide that. And I think we're fortunate that uh, we have you on the PED side and us on the adult side and we uh, play off each other's strengths. So it seems to work really well. One thing you've done really well in the past, and it's been amplified recently, is virtual visits. And so when we think about, you know, how we take care of patients with rare diseases and COVID kind of forced us into a lot more virtual visits, but this has really been something you've been doing for a while. So maybe tell us a little bit about how you use virtual visits to take care of patients with rare diseases like sarcoma. Actually, it maybe one of the most favorite things I do in my job. It's a little bit of detective work. I'll get a email or a phone call um, just asking for help from a family, a caregiver, another uh, physician. And I'll say, um, I'd like to do a really good job of helping you out. What I need is a short summary Cleveland Clinic medical record number, 
Um, the patients often can upload their scans themselves once they have a medical record number. And then my secretary will schedule a time. And I have carved out Tuesdays and Thursday mornings for this. But what happens is I have uninterrupted time to put together a summary uh, that has patient contact information, the referring physician's information, about a half a page of uh, history. It's kind of like, do you remember Joe Friday and Dragnet, just the facts? And sometimes when they think they're helping you by sending all the medical records, it has very little useful information. But the summary I can look at and kind of know where they've been. And that allows me to have a conversation about what I call opportunities to improve health. And it's an organized approach to sarcomas and other solid tumors where you talk about local control, which drugs to use, how do you know it's getting better or worse, imaging or biomarkers, uh, toxicity reduction and preventing side effects, social, like the one I just got off of before this, we ended up with this little baby with Ewing sarcoma needs to go on Make-A-Wish. Now I realize he may be too young to remember his wish, but his siblings will. So how do you go about doing it? You talk to the social worker, you have your pediatric oncologist side the form, you decide on a good time uh, when he's on maintenance therapy to go. So you can do things in an unrushed manner during a virtual visit where you provide high value information in a non-threatening environment, it's a conversation. And then you follow up with an updated summary so they have something to look at. So I was doing probably about 150 a year before COVID, maybe 200. And now I do even more. But the virtual visits are to provide uh, information and education so that they can then work with their doctors at home to do better. And if they're already in our Cleveland Clinic system, it kind of primes them for what they need to do next. Like if they live in Michigan or, or Pennsylvania, they don't have to come to the R building to have a conversation. We can do that virtually. And so that's certainly been very, very helpful for patients that are sort of in their course of therapy and you're providing that information. How, how have you incorporated the virtual visits uh, for patients that you may be seeing and treating and doing follow-up visits and, you know, surveillance scans and things like that. How has that played out? Oh, all different ways. One I really like is he's on, uh, he has desmoplastic small round cell tumor. So he's got a rare kind of sarcoma, but he lives in Florida. So he can get his scans at Cleveland Clinic Weston. They show up on Epic just like he lived in Cleveland, and uh, it allows me to supervise his care with his uh, medical oncologist. Uh, he can stay on study. And um, so the world's become a small place because of things like uh, email, shared medical records, as well as the virtual visits, and which I think are much more friendly than email. I don't know how many emails you get a day, Dale, but I get way too many. Too many. So, Absolutely. 
So um, the virtual visits allow you to have a quality conversation that's better than a phone call and way better than an email. Great. Now, you mentioned that uh, we start our, uh, our week together at 7 a.m. with a tumor board. Um, and, you know, we used to meet in a room and now we're sort of doing this by Zoom. But tell me about virtual tumor boards and the work that's being done and really driven on the PED side in a lot of ways for virtual tumor boards for sarcoma. I think, you know, for us, the epiphany was uh, um, Stacy Zoller's seeing a lot of the desmoids now, this very rare, indolent, sarcoma-like, solid tumor. And most patients with desmoid have never met anybody else with desmoid. It's so rare. So um, they all belong to this club. And they said, well, why don't we have a desmoid tumor board across the nation? So um, the Desmoid Foundation facilitated that. And Stacy realized this was a very good for forum for rare diseases where you get people with interest and expertise swaying in. Mateo Truco is going to be doing this now for Ewing sarcoma. I can see doing it in the future for other types of sarcomas, particularly as patients will need more individualized therapy. We've gotten good at the upfront therapy, but then what to do for the relapse or the maintenance or the local control or the special situation. Uh, this would be a, a tremendous resource for these patients. When the virtual tumor boards and the virtual visits really allow us to help patients in areas that might not have a specialist nearby. All right. And even for us, I, I always learn like learning new things. So like I said, you don't get smart talking to yourself. And uh, this is another way to, to learn new things. Very good. Tell me a little bit from on a treatment side about um, work that you were involved with, with uh, pazopinib and radiation therapy. Oh, yeah. I remember having a conversation. Uh, this was 2005 or six when I was at MD Anderson. I talked to their head of radiation therapy and I said, it seems to me that chemo alone's not enough and radiation alone's often not enough, but together they do better. And I told them about an experience that I had with osteosarcoma, where it really made a big difference using both. So I asked them, is there any cancer that does better with radiation alone versus radiation and chemo? Can he think of it? You know, he had 40 years of experience. He said, nope, not in my long career. When we started seeing patients with bone metastases, Jake Scott, Aaron Murphy, and Chirag Shah are very good at SBRT. So the question is, could we make the SBRT not only more effective, but treat other areas of their body that are not getting radiation while they're getting simulated, the physicists are developing the plan, and then they're getting the radiation. So pisopinib, which does not have a big effect on blood count, but also works well with radiation and also blocks one of the signals we call vascular endothelial growth factor, which 
tumors try to, and normal tissue try to heal after their damage. Um, they try to make new blood vessels. The pisopinib blocks that. So it's kind of a way of making the radiation more of a sure thing. So pisopinib's uh, approved for sarcoma, so we started using it in many of these patients. And I uh, actually had a large enough series that we could have that presented at the most recent uh, major national meeting for radiation oncology, we call it ASTRO. Very good. One of the things I know we talk about quite often in tumor boards is about um, cytoreduction. And I know one of the areas you're um, interested in is uh, desmoplastic small round cell tumors. Tell me a little bit about the work you're doing in that. Oh, this is a, a nightmare for the patient because they present with lots of metastases in their abdomen. And it's like, how do I ever get this under control? And, and these patients have a Ewing's family tumor. So desmoplastic small round cell tumor is very similar to Ewing's sarcoma. So it responds to that kind of therapy, but it doesn't go away. So they need a very patient, talented surgeon uh, when I said MD Anderson is Andrea Hayes Jordan, here it's Dan Joyce. But their job is to eventually, when the patient reaches a plateau response, that could be six months, nine months, most recent one we did, had been treated for two and a half years. And um, finally, the surgeon says, I can remove almost all of this. And uh, our job is to get rid of. 95 to 99% of the tumor, do a cytoreductive surgery, if you will. But then have uh, peds oncology or medical oncology help get your nutrition back to normal, and then you get whole abdominal radiation. So it's another example of multidisciplinary care where radiation alone wouldn't be enough, surgery alone wouldn't be enough, chemo wouldn't be enough, but together, you can accomplish a lot. And in some of these patients get durable remissions. So uh, the one I, I remember the best with this was she had uh, very similar to DSRCT as a EWSCNF 444 fusion. So super rare UH fusion, looked just like desmoplastic. And when she had the surgery, she had to come from another center, but she convinced her medical oncologist by saying, I just want to become a statistical outlier. I know my chances are low. And sure enough, she has. Um, she's now three years later without a relapse. She's gone through graduate school, got her master's in public health, and she's you know on to do great things. So... It might seem like at the time, you know, how could you do a surgery like this and not relapse? But uh, if you have a sequential type of therapy after that, you've, you've got way better chances than you did in the old days, where it's just do the surgery and hope for the best. So it, certainly sarcoma is a complex uh, set of diseases, but um, where do you see the gaps? What do we need to be focusing on? 
getting more molecular information nowadays because it's possible. That field has gone so fast, it's been amazing. Robbie Hanna was forward thinking enough to realize this. So we, we now have uh, two geneticists embedded in our clinic. And one's a genetic counselor, Brittany Griffin, and then uh, Harry Lesmana. And just having those resources so you can not only make the diagnosis, but say, what is special about this tumor? And will it provide us with information we can act on in the future? For a while, I was fairly, I'd say, pessimistic that we'd come up with targeted therapies from Foundation One or, or Tempest reports. But I think uh, we're approaching the point where we'll be getting uh, more information like the flanking regions next to breakpoints to develop personalized vaccines. So what's missing now is uh, gumption <laughs> by people like me <laughs> to, to take the time, uh, do the deep thinking, uh, work with people like Brittany. And uh, it's interesting, the conversations I've had with uh, both Foundation One and Tempest, they're willing to provide the information. And even our own molecular lab can do some of this. So how do we get ourselves organized? So if and when a company like BioNTech, and they should have the resources after the COVID vaccine, you would, you would think, uh, let me think, they're shipping uh, Pfizer, BioNTech, 2 billion doses in 2021. I think they have the resources to do this. And uh, the real question will be, how will they do that? When will they do, do that? And I'm optimistic because uh, Aslam Teresi and Ugar Salin, who, who founded BioNTech, uh, came from pediatric oncology backgrounds. So they understand the problem of rare diseases needing very specific treatment. But I think if you can prove the concept in things like what we treat, it'll be generalizable. So how to stay in the mainstream, but uh, ahead of it, so you don't get left behind or uh, instead of saying, why me? You should say, why not me? You know, we can do this at Cleveland Clinic. So what's missing is uh, a little bit of gumption, a little bit of being organized, trying to decide what's important, uh, where would we want to be three, five years from now, and then positioning ourselves to do that. Very good. You mentioned vaccine therapies, and you've done work with vaccine therapies in the in the past. Is that continuing as we move forward? Um, I don't have a lab anymore, but it's interesting. Part of my efforts in the lab were on adjuvants. And, you know, everybody always focuses on what are you immunizing against? I think as important as what you're immunizing against, the antigen or the protein or the mRNA that codes the protein nowadays, is how it's immunogenic and presented to the T cells. So one of the missing pieces is who responds and who responds well. And immunology is 
come a very long ways from when I had a lab. I think Tim Chan's going to do great work here, uh, figuring these things out. But it's almost as if, you know, you think to yourself, well, our elderly and our immune compromised patients have responded well to the COVID vaccine. Why wouldn't they respond well to an mRNA vaccine? And I think what it tells me is the adjuvant problem of coming up with ways to present antigens to the immune system that work is being solved. What is not known is what you have to do to get polyclonal immunity. And I think it's going to be a process. Um, you'll want to do what's easy first, but kind of like uh, many projects, it's the in-depth details that'll count. You know, do you make a nested set of mRNA so you develop polyclonal immunity? So the way I see what we're doing here, I don't have a current vaccine protocol, but what I would like to see is us having the capability to start with single patient INDs or joint trials very quickly that do because we have the information on our patients. Very good. Well, you've provided some great insight today. Any additional comments? Well, a couple. The, the first is uh, I think none of us can tell what's happening in the future, but if you look at the trend, there will be good things that have come out of COVID. Uh, like the virtual visits is a good example. I think the other is a certain willingness to see centers and industry and patients cooperate in ways we never thought. So um, stay tuned. I think we'll be in for some good surprises uh, in the next couple of years. Very good. Well, thanks, Pete. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to share. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances. You will find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash Cancer Advances Podcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from Cleveland Clinic's Cancer Center experts on our Consult QD website at consultqd.clevelandclinic.org cancer. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.